This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. This week started out with the train wreck at Mar-a-Lago, but not even Trump announcing his bogus run for the presidency can ruin a week that has actually been pretty damn good for democracy. We did it, folks. We managed to get through the midterms almost without incident. The peaceful transfer of power was a relief to most of us and proof that we aren't completely broken. Bent? Yeah, sure, but not totally broken. The people have spoken. Our votes were all counted. The winners and losers shook hands, and now it's back to business. Where it was botched, where the machines didn't work in more than a third of the polling centers, six hours off to vote. It's outrageous what happened. We had lines that were three and four hours long in retirement areas where people were old. And all of this happened in Republican areas. My area where I was going to vote, the printer didn't work. There wasn't enough toner in the printer. So I went to a liberal part of town and got right in and out in about 15 minutes. But what have we learned? That staying vigilant and participating in the process actually works. That the Magas or the Magagas or whatever the fuck we're calling them today, they did not defeat us at the ballot box. The election deniers did not win. American democracy still works. But we can't ever, ever take what we've got for granted ever again. Pick your battle, but don't imagine that we won't have to fight to keep our rights and hold those who seek to destroy our democracy accountable. Now, what we learned from the election of my successor, from the pandemic, from the insurrection, is actually the stories we tell do matter. And you know, having some baseline of sticking to the truth when you're telling stories about our country, mm-hmm. about policy, but also about the other side, that matters. Um, and and I, I, I like to think that part of what happened in this election is people said, okay, you know what, some of this stuff's getting a little too crazy. It turns out that there is a, you know, a majority of country that does prefer normal, not crazy. And that's, and that's, is, is, that's a basis for hope. Friday, attorney Merrick Garland tapped longtime federal prosecutor Jack Smith as special counsel to oversee a multi-pronged investigation into the former president's efforts to subvert the 2020 election and for withholding stolen, highly classified government documents at his Mar-a-Lardo resort in Florida. They say Trump just liked to hold on to mementos. You know, they thought they were his. The Post says he kept the documents, not for profit or for sketchy stuff, but because of his ego, which we know is big. And the guy liked to hold on to stuff to remind him of his time in the White House. You know, like the little letters from Rocket Man. And as far as the January 6th investigation goes, you know that little committee, January 6th? They never even referred Trump to the DOJ for charges. But now all of a sudden the special counsel is going to arrest the former president? On what charges? Now, I don't understand it, but let's forget about that for a second. Because selecting a special counsel is Garland's attempt to shield the Justice Department from conflict of interest. And since there has never been a criminal of Trump's magnitude in the White House before, 
The DOJ's unprecedented investigation into his numerous corrupt activities needs to be undertaken with the, with, let's just say, with the guise of professionalism and transparency. Smith seems to be the right guy for the job. I mean, he served as chief of the DOJ's public integrity section, and he was the chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague, where he investigated war crimes in Kosovo. In other words, Smith is pretty squeaky clean, he's highly experienced, and he's beyond reproach. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Garland also vowed that Smith would carry out the job of looking into Trump in an even-handed and urgent manner. Seconds later, a Trump spokesman said, and I quote, This is a totally expected political stunt by a feckless, politicized, weaponized Biden Department of Justice. Look at this. They found nothing, well, you know, except for the hundreds of classified documents. And then I announce and then they appoint a special prosecutor. Well, there you have it in one sentence, everything we've been saying about why he's announcing literally months before he has any reason to. So he can say the stupid, obvious sentence, I announce and then they do X. And on Thursday, as Republicans yammered to the press about taking back the House, one of their commitments to America was to investigate the DOJ and Hunter Biden, of course. They're not going after any of the stuff they ran on, not crime or inflation. The crisis at the border has magically disappeared too. I'm introducing articles of impeachment against Joe Biden on Monday. I'm really happy Dr. Fauci's retiring because that's going to give a lot of time for him to sit in our committees. We also want to get to the bottom of the origination of COVID-19. One of our highest priorities under a Republican Congress will be to stop left-wing censorship and to restore free speech. I will not vote for one more dollar to Ukraine. I will not vote for one more piece of materiel to Ukraine. There's no plans to subpoena Joe Biden. There are plans to subpoena Hunter Biden. What did the DOJ and FBI do? Did they suppress? And the answer is yes, they suppressed. Because all they want to do is undermine the public confidence in President Biden and anyone who would have the audacity to investigate Trump and his merry bend of fucking insurrectionists. It's past time for Republicans to take party of law and order off their resume. Merrick Garland has the January 6th committee to thank for their hard work untangling the criminal intent behind the insurrection. As the committee winds up its investigation, they've managed to get the testimony of Robert Engel. Engel, you may recall, was the member of Trump's Secret Service detail that the former president allegedly assaulted on the 6th for not following his order to drive him to the Capitol so that he could join the rioters. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. 
According to Chairman Benny Thompson, they have had a laundry list of things left to do, including a quick response to Trump's lawsuit trying to block the committee's subpoena for his testimony and documents. But as the committee's January end date looms, members like Liz Cheney, Elaine Laurie, and Adam Kinzinger will be leaving Congress. Thankfully, they have already made the case that Trump likely violated felony obstruction statutes and criminally defrauded voters. But can they prove that he tampered with witnesses who testified before the committee, like Cassidy Hutchinson? Perhaps? Well, the January 6th committee gave him that deadline, and he didn't give them the documents, and he's looking like he's gonna get away with it because very soon that committee won't exist anymore. And so let's not put it past him to be able to actually choose to just not partake in this. But right now they are deciding if Trump's refusal to testify is worthy of a contempt of Congress referral. Now, if it were up to me, I'd say yes, fucking absolutely yes. But rest assured, the committee is still on the case, working through the holidays to bring us their massive final report. And to finally see justice done for January 6th. And speaking of justice, the Oath Keepers trial featuring eyepatched pirate and Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes wrapped up this Friday. Revelations from the trial include Rhodes' own admission that he repeatedly called on the former president to deploy the military to prevent ceding the Oval Office to Biden. When Trump didn't, they decided to do it themselves. I'm recording that uh, someone made up Stuart Rhodes a few days after the assault on the Capitol, where Rhodes said, Basically, his only regret was that he didn't bring rifles, and then he engaged in some violent rhetoric involving a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. One Oath Keeper said her participation in the 6th was like going shopping on Black Friday and getting caught up in a mob. I mean, I guess if the capital was Macy's, but guess what? It fucking ain't. After a grinding eight-week trial, prosecutors pleaded with jurors to consider the weight of Rhodes' words in the lead-up to January 6th. And I quote, These defendants repeatedly called for the violent overthrow of the United States government, and they followed those words with action, Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Rakosi said in her closing statements. Please do not become numb to these statements. Think about what is actually being called for in these statements. Violence. What it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war, and no one would have won there. The Oath Keepers, if convicted of seditious conspiracy, could get up to 20 years behind bars. Now we wait to hear what the jury comes back with. Former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg testified in court Thursday describing how Trump, Eric, and Don Jr. allegedly participated in a scheme to defraud tax authorities. But then, Weisselberg also managed to try and put the blame all on himself and Jeff McConney, the assistant controller. Did become aware of what he was doing after the fact when the company audited its financial practices in the wake of Donald Trump's election to the White House. Um, after that, he says 
he was not punished by the company. He was actually given a raise, which prosecutors say suggests that at the very least, uh, the company was condoning or looking the other way once it learned. In a sad case of loyalty gone wrong, which I probably understand better than most, Weisselberg, who is still on the Trump org's payroll to this day, turned himself into a pretzel trying not to implicate anyone in the Trump family directly. When defense attorney Alan Futterfuss asked Weisselberg, Trump didn't authorize you to commit tax fraud, did he? Weisselberg cried, of course not. This case is complicated and still ongoing, but if ever you needed proof that the Trump family is willing to throw literally anyone under the bus, look no further than the tragic case of Alan Weisselberg. But now there's some good news. The Respect for Marriage Act passed an important hurdle this week. Democrats made the same-sex marriage bill a priority moving quickly to enact it while they still hold both chambers. Let me just put this out there for the Republican senators. If you vote in favor of the idea that society has an obligation to recognize male-male or female-female dyads in the same way that society has an obligation to recognize male-female, you should not be in the Republican Party. Twelve Republicans joined Democrats to advance the bill, putting it on track to become law in the twilight of the Democratic-held Congress. And before total gridlock begins... These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do And I suppose it was inevitable, but the esteemed Nancy Pelosi has stepped down as Speaker of the House clearing the way for Hakeem Jeffries, a liberal black gen exer from New York, to ascend to Democratic leadership. During her moving speech before Congress Thursday, Kevin McCarthy was in his office and not on the floor of the House, cutting some backroom deal with ghoulish putt Stephen Miller. And while they were probably talking about ways to torture children, Speaker Pelosi had this to say. In my 35 years in the House, I have seen this body grow more reflective of our great nation. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. In what appears to already be a complete clusterfuck, Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are already promising to investigate Nancy Pelosi. For what? For saving the country. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. And now for the main event. Today we welcome to our show one of the most influential spiritual leaders living today. And trust me, I need some spiritual guidance. I'm broken, but listening to him made me better. His name is Saguru, and he's the founder and head of the Isha Foundation, based in Coimbatore, India. The foundation, established in 1992, has ashrams and yoga centers all over the world, and it provides education and spiritual connection for anyone seeking it. Sadhguru has been teaching yoga since 1982. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Inner Engineering, A Yogi's Guide to Joy and Karma, A Yogi's Guide to Crafting Your Destiny, and is a frequent speaker at international forums. Sadhguru also advocates for protecting the environment against climate change, leading many initiatives like Project Green Hands, Rally for Rivers, Carvery Calling, and the Journey to Save Soil. 
In 2017, he received the Padma Vibhushan, India's second highest civilian award for his contributions to spirituality and humanitarian services. Interested in this one? Believe me, you will be. So let's go now to this fascinating conversation. So welcome, Sadhguru. I am absolutely honored to have you as a guest on my show. And I thank you so much for being here today. You know, before we start getting into some of the things that you're working on, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Tell my listeners, you know, um, your background, how you became involved in legitimately what I would refer to as trying to save the planet. <laughs> That's a very tall thing to claim. <laughs> uh, I'm only trying to save one layer of the planet, which is the topsoil which in many ways is the home for over 85% of life on the planet. So, uh, what do I say about myself? Uh, <laughs> nothing much, just been doing whatever I see as needed around me. Fortunately, uh, millions of people joined this process and uh, fundamentally, my work is about raising human consciousness. And as people's consciousness rise, many things that they were blind to becomes visible. So, getting them into action to see that uh, in some way we, we become a part of the solution rather than being part of the problem, that is our whole work in a way. Yes, agreed with you 100%. You know what, Sadhguru, we're just going to jump right in and talk about what's going on here on the planet right now and today. So let's talk about Save Soil, one of your projects, and what I've heard you describe as the biggest threat to our lives on this planet. See, uh, right now, when we say soil, we must understand it's a living system. It is the largest living system, not just on this planet. In the known universe, it is the largest living system with trillions and trillions of organisms, which are the foundational life for all of us and every other life on this planet. When I say foundational life, it's not just because of the food that we eat that comes from the soil. Our very bodies are over 60% microbial life, only 40% genetic material. This is true with us, this is true with every other creature. So the foundational life is, are those organisms which are not visible to our eyes, but they are there. To what extent they are there means a handful of topsoil could have anywhere between eight to ten billion organisms, fifty to seventy-five thousand species in a handful of soil. And to what extent they are there means the topsoil scientists in the world are openly admitting that they know less than one percent of the soil organisms. So, knowing less than one percent, we have messed with the soil a bit too much. So, if we don't correct this in the next maximum of fifteen to twenty-five years, I think the price that we will pay uh, and the future generations will pay will be a very painful price. And as human beings, as being conscious, being capable of being conscious of what is coming, we don't see things only after they come. We are capable of seeing things in terms of what is coming. So, seeing what is coming, there is enough time and room if we have the necessary commitment to fix this, to turn this around effectively in the 
next decade, it is very much possible to do that. So right now, Save Soil is that effort to turn this around. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they would listen, but they don't. As a species, we just don't. And it's not just save the soil that we have the same conversation over and over and over again. We talk about our atmosphere. We talk about holes in the atmosphere as a direct result of air pollution. We talk about the rising tide, the rising sea level as a result of, again, how we as human beings have contaminated our planet. I mean, they forget this is the only home that we have. You know, there I know people are talking about space exploration. Why should we look to the solar system as an alternate home after we destroy this planet? You know, as an interesting note, they keep saying to people, and it's on par with your philosophy and with your initiative. I was speaking to a friend of mine who lives down in Florida. And I said, do you know, as a direct result of how we have polluted this earth, they say by no later than 2050, so we're talking about what, 28 years maximum, much of the Florida coastline is going to be underwater. I said, your home that you have there in Florida is going to be underwater. And we have been talking about this now for at least, I don't know, more than 20, maybe 30 years, I remember, and yet we do absolutely nothing. So with that in mind, with the Safe um, Soil Initiative, I understand that you work with leaders from around the globe who are in some cases considered bad guys or who are perhaps not just unconscious, but despots, warlords, and criminals. How do you as really a righteous person, find common ground with them? Well, uh, first thing, Michael, <laughs> the important thing we need to understand is uh, when it comes to soil, when it comes to ecology, as a generation of people, all of us are just bad guys. There are no good guys in this. All of us are bad guys. All the good guys are beneath the soil. <laughs> they are the good guys. <laughs> so right now, the effort is to make all of us bad guys join the party of the good guys. That is the safe soil movement. And are they listening? I must tell you this, in the month of January, uh, the whole world met for uh, concerns of ecology and climate change, global warming and all this stuff in Glasgow. Uh, at that time, there were not a word was spoken about soil, or not significantly at least. But now again, they're meeting in Egypt, there's a whole shift. So this is just a matter of uh, 10 months. In 10 months' time, actually in the last six months, literally every government is talking about it. 81 governments on the planet are working on their soil policies. And uh, just 100 days of Save Soil campaign, we touched 3.91 billion people across the world. So what is missing is just this. Everybody is talking as if somebody is to be blamed. We need to see that as a generation of people, knowingly or unknowingly, we have caused this damage. As a generation of people, we can rise and turn this around. So instead of including people, we are always trying to start a fight. Well, people are saying war against climate change. Climate change is bad enough, you don't need a war on top of it. So let's tone down our rhetorics 
and look at solutions because every one of us can either be a problem or a solution. Solutions, large-scale solutions are not possible without involving governments. Whatever you call people, uh, you can call somebody a dictator, a despot, or this or that, whatever. But without all of them, there is no solution. I am interested in solution. I am not in the business of passing judgments on people. I am in the business of finding solutions. And the whole world should get engaged in the business of solutions, rather than me naming you something and you naming me something. What is the point of this? All of us come from the same soil. All of us eat and thrive on the same soil. When we die, we definitely go back to the same soil. So, soil is a unifying force. Let us look beyond our differences and name-calling and address the most challenging and basic concern of our times, soil degradation. Too much attention has been paid for air pollution. I'm not saying it's not an issue, it's a significant issue. Carbon fuels, I'm not saying it's not an issue, very significant issue, but 90% of the deforestation on the planet has happened because of commercial or industrialized agriculture. In the last 70 years, since this type of agriculture took over, 67% of the vertebrate population is gone, 82% of the biomass insects are gone, 92% of the freshwater aquatic life is gone. What's our plan? So, in our fierceness to survive, we are just uprooting the very roots of our survival. So, can we fix this? We can definitely can fix it. Can we fix it by taking positions, you versus me? No. It is extremely important, it doesn't matter what you believe in, it doesn't matter what I believe in, it doesn't matter which color of skin we are, what nation we are, what we are. If all of us come together, we can fix this, and fortunately, that con uh, uh, congruence is beginning to happen, so let's make that happen. Of all of the countries that you have spread this word, which country are you finding the most receptive to this concept because you're you're a hundred percent correct um soil obviously is where our food will grow and it's where the earth will continue to prosper and to and to grow which country are you finding the most receptive to your project to your initiative well, globally, uh, no country has refused the basic aspect of safe soil movement. Everybody has welcomed it. The European Union has started the consultative process, which is very significant. All the Commonwealth nations, 54 nations, have adopted the policy, and they are trying to work the economics of it. The Caribbean nations were the first ones to go for it, I should uh, acknowledge them. Before I started the movement, when I visited them and put out the idea, they were the first ones to grab it and they're putting it on the ground very quickly. India, of course, is investing big time on the soil, and in the next uh, few months, uh, soil policy will roll out in India. We ran a very low-key uh, campaign in China, but in spite of that, China has already started a, a soil survey, which they had not done for the last 40 years. So, these things are beginning to happen. In United States, we have uh, still not, uh, uh, you know, really approached the government in any big way. 
which we will be doing in the coming six months, but already United States government has invested about $8.5 billion in cover cropping. That is, when the land is not in use, there must be a cover crop to protect the land. So, they've invested $8.5 billion, which is not much for United States, but it is a beginning. I'm sure more will come, but as I said, we have not even started with the U.S. government, which we will. Right now, we are waiting for these elections to be over, and then we will go at it. So then, how can we in the United States support the Save the Soil project? My listeners on here on Maya Culpa, because I understand that you're working with the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, um, John Kerry. Is the Biden administration on board with Save the Soil? Do they understand just how important it is for the future of this planet? I think uh, the key elements of the government understands this, but still they have not found enough traction in the larger uh, elected representatives because we have not really run that campaign yet. And uh, above all, the citizens of the nation have to rise and speak about it, which we are trying to get that going. We are forming a powerful board, which will have the necessary voice to speak. So uh, are they listening? They are listening, but as I said, we have not spoken to the decision makers as yet, which we will do because in the last three, four months, uh, things have been, you know, we've been traveling internationally, we did not do this. Plus now election time, election time is not the time to talk about it because everything that you speak will become, you know, divided among people. That is a little bit of a emotionally hyped situation in any given country. So post-election, when things settle down, we will start speaking to the elected leaders and uh, definitely we'll get this across. I 100% see they are with us and we have spoken to the uh, main leaders of the farming community. They are 100% with us. They very much welcome this extra voice that is needed uh, to regenerate their soil. It is just that soil regeneration process, large scale, globally cannot happen without incentives. This is a three-pronged policy, what we are pushing. One thing is, initially, we need government incentives to push it to a minimum of 3% organic content. When I say minimum of 3% organic content, UNFAO and other agencies have uh, clearly put this out. Less than 3% is not soil, really. If you go further down, soil will become sand. This is a simple thing that people need to understand. If you add organic content to sand, it will become soil. If you take away all the organic content from the soil, it will become sand. This is desertification. For your, uh, you know, listeners, for them to understand what's happening in the world, in the last 25 years, we have lost 10%, 10% of the Earth's land to desertification. That is how rapidly it is happening, because lack of organic content why there is no organic content in the agricultural lands. There are only two sources of uh, organic content. This must be understood because so many people are soaked in technology. They think there is some technological solutions or applications. Applications may be there. We can enhance application, but there are only two sources of organic content, plant life and animal life. These are the only two sources of organic content that's present on this planet and in the known universe. So, you can use technology to enhance applications, but you cannot create organic content from somewhere. The source is in plant life and animal life. 
Right now, our farms are bare land. There is no plant life, there is no animal life. When it's in use, there is somewhat there, but once it's not in use, it is just plowed and left open. When we plow the land, today with modern machines, we are uh, plowing 12 to 14 inches deep, ripping the land open and leaving it. This is uh, very much like uh, you are in uh, Arizona and you peeled your skin and stood in the sun. What happens to you is what is happening to the planet. The entire land and all the organisms are screaming because they can clearly see we are working towards their extinction. On an average, about 27,000 species are going extinct per year. At this rate of slide, in approximately 25 to 40 years' time, this slide may go into your tumble. Once it goes into your tumble, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do. So that is the window we have. We have to act in this window. So about the three-pronged policy, first of all, to encourage the farmers worldwide, we need incentives in each country according to its economic capability. We prepared 193 unique documents depending upon the soil types, uh, climatic conditions, economic conditions, and agricultural traditions. We made 193 documents for 193 nations because this is very important. It is specific to a given nation, otherwise it will not work. So incentive from the government is a must to push large number of farmers to go for it. The next thing is the carbon credit. Right now, the whole carbon credit industry is largely servicing only industrial output and industrial uh, business houses and stuff like that. It is time farmers go for this. And last seven years, we've been trying to <laughs> get carbon credits for our farmers, but we are running pillar to post, not getting anywhere because it's not designed for the farm. Because on the farmland to measure what is the amount of carbon sequestered by a given land is extremely difficult. Morning six o'clock, it'll be one way, seven another way. By the hour, it'll be different. If it's a cloudy day, one way, sunny day, another way, different seasons, all this. So it's not ever possible to measure this properly. We must arrive at a thumb rule that if 1% increase in organic content happens in the soil, what is the general sequestration that is happening? And we must pay the farmer that difference. If that is the second level of uh, incentive that comes in, then there is a big boost. And the third level of uh, incentive is that there must be a market recognition. When I say market recognition, I'm sure uh, you are in New York, if you go to certain stores, somebody will put an apple in your face and say, this is organic. You please request them to give you an inorganic apple. They don't have one. So why are they calling something organic? It has become, the word organic has largely become a marketing jargon. It is time we define organic. That is, what is the organic content in the soil from which this apple is coming? If it is three, one percent, what are the micronutrients available? What are the health benefits? What are the preventive health benefits? We know. If it becomes three percent, what it is, we know. If it becomes six percent, what it is, we know. Now the six percent organic content, uh, the apple that comes from six percent organic content soil may cost five to ten percent more. But instead of eating six apples, if you eat one, it takes care of your nourishment requirement. Right now, there are studies showing that an, an orange which you ate in 1920, what nutrients it was giving you, today if you have to get the same nourishment, you have to eat eight oranges. 
So, did you ever have eight oranges for breakfast, Michael? Such a thing didn't happen and it's probably not practical. <laughs> so, this is what we have… The answer to that would be no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer is an emphatic no, Sadhguru. The This is what we have done to our food. So, without these three basic incentives, one from the government, one from the businesses in the form of carbon credit, another from market recognition, that is the consumers recognizing the quality of what comes to them. If these three things are implemented in every nation, turning the soil around within six to eight years, a maximum of 12 years is very much a possibility and we must do it. This is not new, this is not an experiment. Last nearly 30 years, we have manifested this on the ground, about 132,000 farmers converted towards regenerative agriculture under our stewardship. And today, most of them are earning 300 to 800 percent more than what they were earning eight to 10 years ago. So now we are working with 5.2 million farmers in southern India. This needs to happen worldwide. Only there is a solution because soil and environmental issues cannot be uh, attended to in segregation. G micro Microbial life is a global phenomenon. It is not something that I can conduct separately, you can conduct separately. Unless we get together, you said there are so many types of people in the world, it's different types of governments, different types of people, different types of ideologies, philosophies, belief systems. It doesn't matter what we have made up in our minds because our ideologies, our belief systems, our political affiliations or religious affiliations are all made up in our minds. But we all come from the same soil. We go back to the same soil. If we want to thrive, we have to thrive on the same soil. Can I tell you a little story, Michael? I wish you would. <laughs> because you said, uh, 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 what is that? Uh, I would, uh, I would rather not do so. That's why I was asking you. <laughs> <laughs> so this happened. This happened in 2060. A few scientists uh, sought appointment with God and they got the appointment. They went there and they told him, Hey, old man, you've done pretty well with creation. But today, everything that you can do, we can also do. It's time you retire. God said, Oh, is that so? What is it that you can do? He said, Look, they said, Look at this. They dug up a little bit of soil, made a vague image of a human child, and did all kinds of things. Within a few minutes, the child came alive. God said, That's very impressive. But first, get your own soil. I'm just saying there's no substitute for soil. It's, it's true, but the problem that I see, and I'm only going to speak about America because I'm not familiar with or intimately familiar with governments in other countries and how they're handling it here in the United States. We don't think past our nose. We already know for the last 50 years, we've been talking about climate change and we see on a regular basis, the devastation by climate change. We see the polar ice caps melting. We see the temperature of the earth getting hotter year after year after year. And so there was that great big global initiative in order to save the planet. And that basically lasts as long as, I don't know, the the attempts to raise money off of it, right? You have somebody that's always out there. They've come up with a fund in order to save the earth fund and somebody makes a fortune of money, but nothing ever gets done. And 
I say this because I'm now looking to see what's happening, for example, in Ukraine, because some of the greatest soil, the most fertile soil in the world is in Ukraine. And now the war in Ukraine doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Ukraine will not be able to produce food, which of course will then lead to mass starvation, and we're already beginning to see that in the marketplace. So why haven't we evolved past war when the consequences are so grave? Say, uh, you use this term that we don't think beyond our nose. So when we do not think or act beyond our nose, our nose uh, will become Pinocchio's nose just to accommodate a few things, it has to grow. And you know why Pinocchio's nose was growing, <laughs> so... <laughs> yes, and don't forget, I worked for the biggest liar of them all. So yes, I'm fully aware. So, uh, <laughs> so about war, see, let's understand this. I'm not talking about any one nation, but some nations become more significant than the others in this aspect. Tell me, are we constantly investing in military hardware and armaments and new and new, newer and newer technologies going into military hardware. Right now, people are talking about how they're going to arm the spaceships. That is, they don't have to bomb from this geography or that geography, they can bomb from the space. And uh, they're talking about weapons which won't destroy the buildings, which will just kill the human beings. Uh, all kinds of things. So the 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 highest of technology, the best of technology, always goes towards military use. You think all this be is being done, all these missiles, bombs, and everything that we created. You think it's artwork? We're just doing it for the beauty of it, or do you believe that someday we intend to use it? Mm. Well, some people would say that the reason we keep advancing military technology is. The purpose is, of course, not to use it and to use it as a deterrent. I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it either. It's That's a why tremendous I told you about profit the center. Knows. <laughs> yes, it's it's a tremendous, tremendous profit center for companies like Halliburton and politicians who are invested in Halliburton and other and other military companies. It would be wonderful if they would put a portion of that. You know, many years ago, I read a book, and it's so on point, except it deals with the sea, about, um, it's called Ocean Bankruptcy, I believe the name of the book was. And it talked about the Chilean sea bass. Chilean sea bass is an extinct species. So when people go to the restaurant and they pay extra because it says on the menu, Chilean sea bass, it is not. They over-harvested, they destroyed the entire population, and they do not exist anymore. Maybe it's a Mediterranean um, whitefish or uh, something, but it is not a Chilean sea bass. And on par with what's happening to soil and to, unfortunately, what we need for this earth to exist and for us to exist, we don't invest back and we don't stop the destruction. So, you know, when you say that you're speaking to all of these governments, my hope, my, my prayer is that they're listening because we have no other place to go. And I don't know why they don't think again, past their noses. I don't know where they think that we're going to go underground, up in the air. This is our home. And we're destroying it every single day. Well, uh, fortunately, the governments are listening across the world. As I said, 
In United States, we have still not started the moment in, uh, at the administrative level. So we will do that in the coming months. But in the rest of the world, people are listening. But as you said, see, uh, when I started the, uh, uh, <laughs> my ride from London to Southern India, I did 30,000 kilometer motorcycle ride at this age in 100 days with 691 events along the way, okay? The... everybody thought the idea is to kill myself, but here I am, still okay. So, <laughs> when I started this process, we... It, we had already brought this to table that the European Union was considering as a soil policy. But uh, then the war came, they said there is a war, so we will postpone it by two years. So, we pleaded with them that two years is too much, because when has there been a time since, let's say, World War II, 1944, where there has been no war for at least two years? Every two years, definitely there is another war and another war. Somebody needs a war, all right? So it's going on. So war is happening. I know the pressures and concerns for you being close to the war, but you can postpone it three months, maximum six months, not more. Fortunately, they have taken it up. Last month, they've already started the consultative process. It may take uh, six to 12 months, this consultative process, because all these nations have to agree to that. I think they're definitely heading in that direction. So, European Union is on means once Europe makes a soil policy, generally the rest of the world will look at that as an ideal policy. And they will make small changes for their own nations according to their economic and other conditions but it will happen. Commonwealth has taken it up, that is 54 nations. India has taken it up, that means all the surrounding nations will take it up. So, it is definitely on significantly in the world and leadership is listening and want to do it. The most important thing is that we don't take this stance, you versus me, because all of us are mea culpa in this. None of us are out of this. No, I agree with you in that. Well, let me ask you this then. In the United States, we always say that elections have consequences. And we fear that if the right, meaning the GOP, regains their power, that they will jettison our democracy for an autocracy. How do we handle our feelings of loss and despair, not just for ourselves, but for the country as a whole? See, the purpose of a democracy is that people can choose who should rule them for the next four years in this country, little longer in other countries. So when people choose somebody, then I don't agree with it because I don't like it. This is not a fair stance to take because once you have taken the stance of accepting democracy as a way, you will never get a perfect government, but you have the preference of changing it every four years and hoping to get the best possible performing government. You're looking for a performing government, not a perfect government. So I wouldn't like to take the stance, this per party is this, this party, the other party is something else. I... I'm not very conversant with uh, the American politics, so I don't wish to make any statement on that. But uh, what I see from as an external observer to American politics, my exposure to American politics is only when I'm uh, here for a few weeks in a year. What I see is there are no uh, parties in the country. They have become like 
two different tribes. I belong to this tribe, you belong to that tribe, no way to <laughs> come together on anything. That seems to be what is reflecting at least in the international news. That's how I see it. I think uh, <laughs> something like this would uh, kind of complete that is uh, there is a joke going around that this happened uh, that uh, somebody who belonged to a Republican party and his father was a Republican and his grandfather was a Republican was on his deathbed. And uh, when he was just, you know, moving towards his end, he said, I want to change my party, I want to become a Democrat. They said, how can this be? Your father was a Republican, your grandfather Republican. How can you become a Democrat at this stage in your life? He said, I would rather one of them die than ours. Touche, <laughs> 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 very good. So, yes. the important thing about democracy is the people. The people of any given nation, if they want to have genuine democracy, when uh, three and a half years pass in the term of uh, your government, you must sit back and look, what is their performance? Have they done well for the country or not? Well, all of us may have our own judgments, it's all right. But still we have to sit back and see, have they done the best for this country or no? If they have, give them another chance. If they have not, they must go. It's as simple as that. But right now, we have taken a stance that we belong to this party or that party. So it doesn't matter, even if they do well, what I'm seeing is somebody gets elected, on the third day, people are saying, no, he must go, he or she must go. Why? We must give them three and a half years to sh show whether they can perform or not perform. If we constantly keep pulling somebody's leg, how do they perform, first of all? This is slowly becoming a global uh, process, not as badly as here, but it is becoming that way everywhere. No, democracy means this. Somebody gets elected, maybe I don't appreciate that person or that party, maybe I didn't vote for them, but once they're elected, I must bow down to the will of the people and learn to work with them. Till the next election comes, when I have my chance, I can, I can again go at it. But because somebody that I don't approve came to power, I want to pull them down tomorrow. Please, you will destroy democracy and go back to those days where shift of power cannot happen without blood flowing on the streets. The most significant aspect of democracy is this, through the history of human uh, existence, through the history of human administration and change of power wherever it is, and also in animal kingdom, shift of power usually does not happen without blood spilling. Democracy is a, <laughs> is a system that we arrived at, that we can shift power without heads rolling and blood spilling. So let us not talk against it. The moment we say somebody is going to get elected and that is going to destroy democracy, no. We must understand somebody that we don't like can get elected and that is democracy. Yes, look, this very well said. But then if we're going to go and we're going to look at the two various parties, you have Democrats perceive themselves as wanting to support people and the planet. And many of us think that Donald Trump, the GOP, and his followers as destructive, that they're bad for the planet, bad for the country. 
Are Democrats, the way at least you're finding it with your initiative, are Democrats any better than Republicans? Or is it just an illusion? Or a talking point? <laughs> As I said, uh, I'm not very conversant with uh, American politics per se, but I'm sure American people have enough sense to make the right policies, put the right kind of pressure upon whichever government is elected to do the right things when it comes to soil and environment. I'm sure that will happen. We will make sure that happens. Well, <laughs> I wish I was as... Uh, I, I, I really do wish that I believe the same thing. I, I don't, unfortunately. I don't think that our government is thinking much about the planet. Uh, they no. basically let start me, to let, speak no, about no, the let planet. Let me make this clear, Michael. The thing is this. See, not even in a single nation, anywhere in the world, till now, have 60% of the population or adult population stood up and expressed their concern for long-term well-being of their nation, the future of their children, such things have not been done. People are only asking for immediate things. They want 1% tax reduction. They want gas price to go down today. Well, those things they are trying to do because nobody has asked for anything long-term. I'm asking you, if you became the president of this nation and you have only four years, would you take up things that you can complete in four years or would you attempt things which may take 10, 15 or 20 years to complete? You would naturally take things within four years because if at all, if you have the aspiration to get elected once again, you have to please the people. And people have never expressed long-term well-being of the nation, anything for the long-term well-being of the nation. It is time in democratic nations, people understand democracy is not a one-day effort. Democracy means, see in Indian languages, we call this jananayakam. That means, demo, the word for democracy is jananayakam. This means people are the leaders. People must understand, we have elected somebody to do our job, but people are the leaders. So one day I cast my vote, or on that day I took a vacation and went on a picnic, that is not the way to run a democracy. Democracy is not a spectator sport, it's an active involvement sport. Till people get involved like that, we will only be, only be doing this blame game. This party did this, that party did that. Everybody will do that when people do not express their responsibility. And above all, if you had a job where you're right on the top today, and tomorrow morning if you lose elections, you'll be at the bottom. Tell me what would you do? You would do everything possible to get elected next time. That's what you would do. So this is what is unfortunate about democracy. Democracy will be an effective and fantastic system only when people are actively engaged, not in terms of my party versus your party. I suggested this in India. All parties were against me for this. I'm sure it'll the same will happen in United States. But let me say it because I'm not standing for election. I don't have to be popular with anybody. So I suggested in India because many Indian parties have millions and millions of party uh, registered, uh, what do you call them, party members or workers or whatever they are. This must be abolished because I heard in United States, if you belong to one party, if you hold membership, you can't vote to another party candidate or something. This is ridiculous. See, I'm only only in the general, yeah, only in the general election, not in the in the primaries. But 
Your point is well taken. Me, if me I was lucky second. enough to be the president... No, no, let me complete this. I suggested that this, there should be no party membership for anybody except a few office bearers. You may need a thousand or ten thousand office bearers across the country. You have that. No party membership for anybody because the moment I carry a card of a certain party, now I'm committed mm -hmm. to vote for this one, no matter what nonsense they may be doing this time around. So it's important that the citizens of the country re-evaluate every government for what they have done in the last few years and accordingly elect. That will be the well-being of the nation. Otherwise, this will be slowly, it will turn into feudalism or tribalism where no matter what you do, I'm against you. This is not a way to run democracy. I evaluate you. If you've done good things, I'm with you. If you've not done good things, I'm not with you. This is the way of the democratic process. See, if I was president, just to go to your point, yes, you are a hundred percent right, Saguru. You are a hundred percent right. I would be thinking about short-term goals in order to make myself more popular so that I can get reelected. However, that's not to say with the thousands of people that are working for the president that they shouldn't have long-term goals as well. And the planet and our existence in the future, clean water, clean soil, food, etc. These are things that have to be on the table as we negotiate because we certainly have figured out how to destroy the planet. We should be figuring out how to save the planet and our existence. But let me jump into this and ask you this then, because you said at one point in history that we have all the tools we need to address every major issue in the world. So then my question to you is, why, in your opinion, are things still falling apart? How do we address issues like homelessness, like war and starvation? See, uh, why the issues are not getting addressed? Definitely, we have the technology, we have the capability, we have the means to do it. What is missing is a more inclusive consciousness and a commitment to fulfill certain things. Why is this lacking? As you were talking about American politics, Right now, within a nation, we are <laughs> in this emotional state that no matter what, somebody else should not win the election, all right? So, I'm not trying to say this side or that side, whichever side, but that mentality is coming up in people's minds. I'm seeing this happening and beginning to happen elsewhere also, not only in America. So, once we have taken this, now just imagine what is it when it comes to two nations? What is it when it comes to two groups of nations? So, above all, as also we have said, we have invested in wrong directions. We are not willing to dump those investments. One thing is the huge, massive investment that has gone into military. <laughs> we want to use it because we've invested so much. And uh, mm -hmm. to continue to keep the jobs, to make things happen. See, this happened, uh, I was at the economic forum at that time, and that time the North and South Sudan war was going on and some of the, you know, certain celebrities were all there in Sudan and uh, they pick up a black child and, you know, it's a photo op and I appreciate their intention, but that is not where the effort should go. I truly appreciate their intentions, but where should the effort go? Right now, if you're looking at solutions, for example, the Sudan example, if I have to take, there they played a video, a short video of this conflict and all these guys are sitting in pickup trucks uh, and uh, driving and shooting 
in the sky, okay? Not shooting at anybody, they're just shooting, just for fun. I said, see, the way they're shooting the sky, if you were fighting a battle, when you shoot, you want somebody to die, all right? You're a soldier. <laughs> right. But they're shooting the sky. Obviously, there's no dearth for bullets, there's no dearth for armament, somebody is supplying them plenty for whatever reasons, all right? Otherwise, who would shoot the sky? You're not planning to hit anything, you're just shooting for the fun of it like firecrackers. So I said, see, I can tell you who is manufacturing this caliber of uh, uh, bullets for these guns that they're using. There are sixty-two industries in the world who manufacture these bullets. All you have to do is go and see how, you, how to deal with it with just sixty-two, rather than going there and taking pictures with them and doing things with them, what is the point? And uh, look at the pickup trucks they're driving, you can see what make they are. You can just make sure they don't get those pickup trucks, at least they have to walk and they have to hack with the machete, then at least the volume of violence will come down significantly. Why is it somehow guns have gotten into their hands, you can't take it away now? At least you can take away the bullets. They're not capable of manufacturing it by themselves. They're not capable of manufacturing a pickup truck which is uh, mounted uh, with a machine gun on it. Why can't we do this? We don't do this because, Michael, if you were running a gun factory and I'm buying the gun, you want me to shoot, all right? If I don't shoot, what do you do? Right, and I want you to buy as many as you yes. possibly can. As many as you want. You know, let me ask you this, Guru, because you're obviously very deep in thought. Now, I've lived through some pretty major events and I've been part of history, both good and bad. Would you say that this is, that it's been my karma to go through these things? I've been dying to ask you that question. Is this my <laughs> karma? See, uh, I don't know what is the uh, understanding of the word karma. One thing you have to admit is, the word karma, though it is of Sanskrit origin, origin uh, now it has found its way almost into every language on the planet. So it must be significant. <laughs> it is playing a significant role in everybody's life, whether people understand what it is or not, they can't ignore it. So what is karma? You are using a computer right now. Whatever I do, I will not ask you what is the make because that's another two religions which will fight endlessly. Uh, I don't want to ask <laughs> you <laughs> that. Some computer you have, there is hardware. But it is functioning the way it is functioning right now only because of the imprint of the software upon it. Do you agree with me? I do. Yes. Similarly, upon the human being, every moment of your life, through the five senses of what you see, hear, smell, taste and touch, you are constantly taking imprints. Most of it is unconscious, ninety-nine point nine percent is unconscious. Even when you're asleep, these imprints are happening. There are many experiments to show and manifest clearly how in sleep you're taking all the imprints of what's happening around you. So, these imprints are going in millions of gigabytes in your system. Every cell in your body is recording this. The purpose of recording this is so that you don't have to every day figure out things fresh. Now there's recorded memory, 
From that, you develop a certain kind of attitude, certain kind of competence, certain capabilities, and certain orientations of your own kind. So this is karma, this memory is karma. So will you operate out of your existing memory? If you want to believe in certain things of this life and many lifetimes, if you operate out of that memory, then we say you are a victim of karma. If you are able to rise above this software and create your own fresh conscious behavior right now, then we say you're above karma. So, whatever anybody goes through within their experience, see what happens around us is a collective karma of the times in which we exist. It's not all ours, but how you experience it is one hundred percent yours, because human experience is happening from within. What stimuli is coming at us from outside is not always our choice. What kind of ball life throws at you is not your choice, but how you hit it is always your choice, because human experience is determined by how you respond to what's coming to you, not by what is coming to you. In the same given situation, one may suffer, another may be very, very joyful in the same given situation. So it is a conscious response which decides this, but most human beings are in a state of compulsive reaction, instinctual reaction. What is the difference between the two? See, we are a consequence of a long period of evolutionary process. Well, the significance of evolution is that once you become human, let me put it this way, see, you are a human being, you are the only one who is on this planet, you are the only creature on this planet referred to as a being. We do not call grasshoppers grasshopper beings. We do not call a bird as a bird being, an elephant as an elephant being, only you are a human being. What this means is, you have the freedom to be the way you want to be. But does everybody exercise this choice within themselves or not, is determined by whether they are victims of karma or the ride the wheel of karma. I am saying the wheel of karma because all memory has a cyclical pattern to it. Everything that carries memory has a cyclical pattern to it. And that is what you are enjoying about your computer because it's reliable. It comes, it comes back to the same cycle whenever you want. Same thing with your mind, same thing with your uh, intellectual capabilities. When you want something, it comes back to you. So, memory always functions in cyclical patterns. So, this wheel of memory, if you ride it, we say, you are a karma siddha, that means you're riding your karma and doing really well. This is the nature of the wheel. Any wheel is like this, if you ride it, it's fantastic, it'll take you places. If you're crushed by it, it's terrible. So, if you're riding the cycle of your karma, it'll be wonderful. But if you are crushed by it, it is painful. So then let me ask you this follow-up. Because I became a political enemy of the former president of the United States. And I was persecuted by him and his party. Now, I wrote my last book. It's called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the United States Department of Justice Against His Critics. And I wrote it hoping to purge some of my negative thoughts and feelings about it. And also to show people in the country that what happened to me can happen to you. But it's, it's, it was very hard. 
how might I get up and get over my negativity, right? And not just my own negativity, but the negativity that's aimed at me. See, uh, Michael, when you say mea culpa, you are saying it was my karma. My karma means it's my responsibility. Right now, how I am right now is hundred percent my responsibility. This is what karma means. It is the most dynamic way to exist. Karma is not about fatalism. Karma means that I know the way I am. If I'm joyful, it's me. If I'm miserable, it's me. When I see this, naturally, I will start moving towards the positive. If you realize you're the source of your misery, would you not fix it? You will always think, people will always think the source of my misery is somebody else. Now, if we realize that I'm culpable for what is happening to me right now, we learn to fix it. Well, you are saying that is what you're trying to do right now. To fix it in some way, please do that, not only externally in the society, but within yourself. What made you get into that rut? And now what has made you come out of it? You must make use of it and ride this karmic cycle. If we have bitter experiences in our life, the choice is this, we can either become wise or wounded. If we have to become wise, we must stay above the karmic cycle. If we get caught up in the churn of the karmic cycle, then we will become wounded. Now, if you persist with your resentment or hatred or anger within you, you must understand these are poisonous things. When I say poisonous things, I am not saying metaphorically. There is enough medical evidence to show you that if you stay resentful for five minutes, your very blood chemistry changes into poisonous uh, <laughs> tone. So, you're literally poisoning yourself. So, if you drink poison, you die. You can't drink poison and expect somebody else to die. Life does not work like that. So, it's time to keep that aside. If terrible things have happened to us, Let's become wise, not wounded, because when we become wounded, we become more and more reactive and instinctive, not conscious. Agreed. There's... For me, though, for you, I'm having a very you, hard you, time Michael, I'm, passing I'm through the negativity. You some tools. I, I will ask our teams to send you some tools. Please go through this. It's a seven-step process. It's called inner engineering. Engineer yourself into your blissful and wonderful human being, I'm sure uh, with your experiences behind you, there are many contributions you can make for people and this nation. Because I'm finding it very hard, if not impossible, to find joy. I just came off of doing my 250th episode of Mea Culpa with over 60 million downloads. You know, the book is a top. It's number eight on the New York Times bestseller. These are all things <laughs> that should bring me joy. No, I no, have wonderful those, those wife. I have wonderful children. <laughs> I can't, I can't find the joy. I wake up with sadness. I go to sleep with sadness. And it's all of this negativity. And my biggest fear is that, you know, that with Karma, and again, most people don't really understand what karma is. We know the word, we just don't know what it is. Sometimes I just feel as if though, even though I'm in the here and the now, I feel like I'm just paying for the sins of maybe a past life because it just, nothing makes sense in my life anymore. See, uh, Michael, karma is not about sin and virtue nor is karma about reward and punishment. 
karma is a very tangible reality. What you have carried within you, what impressions you have within you, are you consciously responding to that or compulsively reacting to that? So right now, you… I'm sure you're sitting on a table, I mean in front of a table, uh, if there is a screw in that furniture, if you try to unscrew that with your hands, well, you may know you lose all the ten nails of your fingers, but uh, still the screw will be right there. If you try with your teeth, you will lose some of them, but the screw will be right there. But if I courier a screwdriver to you right now, in a minute's time, you will get the screw out of it, isn't it? So, you must understand the significance of human life on this planet. Why we are set above every other creature is our ability to use tools. This is why I said, I will send you some tools, please make use of it. And uh, I will see that in next three to four weeks' time, everybody will see a joyful Michael because it will change the very chemistry of who you are. This is called as inner engineering. And I will also ask them to send you a book on karma so that you understand this concept that you have raised. Uh, this is… this is essential for every human being to understand how the human mechanism functions. Right now, for you to be happy, essentially what you're saying is, for you to be joyful, we have to fix the entire world. Well, that's a remote possibility that you fixing the entire world. Never in the history of time it's happened. I don't believe it'll ever happen. The world will happen exactly the way we want it. That is not the nature of the world. I'm glad it's not happening your way or my way, because what will others do? Little bit your way, little bit my way, this is how the world happens. But this one human being, this one human being must happen your way, isn't it? When this human being doesn't happen your way, that is what you call as misery, that's what you call as sadness. I will send you simple tools, the tools of inner engineering, so that you as a human being happen the way you want. Rest of the world, we will strive to do our best. Well, I'm just trying to help figure how, how to fix America uh, and unleashing the monster that I unleashed in this country. But Sadhguru, the hour is almost over. I have one last question for you. A little bit of a personal question because you're a guru with millions and millions of followers, but you're also a man. You see, nobody's you behind me right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, or, or me for that matter. But you, Sadhguru, you have a family, you ride a motorcycle, and I heard that you love a good laugh. Does this enormous responsibility of being a spiritual leader weigh heavily on you? Or do you ever wish that maybe you were anonymous, just a man living his life? I'm still a man living his uh, more than a life. <laughs> In no way I'm less than that. So uh, what I'm living is... What about the anonymity? Uh, I'm quite anonymous. Well, not with the millions of followers that you have and no, with the no. incredible work that you're doing and the the um, profound effect that you're having on so many people. See, uh, I don't carry my people who are following me on my head. They're following on their own feet. So what's my problem? So if I have become a light or a guidance for them in their lives, it's fantastic. In what way is it burdensome for me? First of all, I'm not somebody who is coming 
uh, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a preacher where I have to read ten books and remember what to say the next time, I don't have to master the scriptures. I'm an uneducated guru, <laughs> the only thing I know, the only thing I know is this piece of life. And fortunately, if you look at it closely enough, every life is made the same way. So whatever I speak about myself, people think I'm speaking about them. And it benefits them, that is left to them. So because I don't carry any knowledge in my head, and I don't have the fear of ever saying anything wrong, because I'm not trying to say anything right, I'm just sharing what is true with me, what has worked for me, that's all I'm sharing. And it seems to work for everybody, and that's wonderful. But I don't carry this burden because I don't carry this title. I am not a guru. They think I'm a guru, that is good for them. If I think I'm a guru, then that'll be a problem for me. I never think I'm a guru. I'm just a full-fledged life. I want to make sure everybody, every human being becomes a full-fledged life. Right now, this is the problem with humanity. For the intelligence and awareness that we carry, we are not full-blown. We are still behaving instinctively like other creatures, but with enormous intelligence and competence. Right now, it's our intelligence and competence which has become the enemy of the world, unfortunately. It's not our ignorance, it is our intelligence which is destroying the world. It is our ability to do things which is destroying the world. This is because for the intelligence that we carry, for the competence and capabilities that we carry, we need to be more conscious. Consciousness is naturally inclusive because of segmentation of humanity in the form of uh, race, religion, ideology, nationality, political ideologies, name it, in every possible way when we divide ourselves, with this level of intelligence and competence, we can only bring destruction. Once we have this level of intelligence, it's extremely important that we have an absolutely inclusive consciousness. That is my work, to bring that consciousness. Is it burdensome? Uh, never. It's just that there's not enough time to do what I want to do. <laughs> that's all. Well, uh, yes, that's always true. There's never enough time. But Sadhguru, let me just say, to everyone that I've spoken about you, you are a light in many, many people's lives. And for that, I thank you. You're a light to trying to save the planet. And for that, again, I thank you. And um, I'd certainly look forward to receiving the materials. I, too, am looking for some light in my life. We will uh, see. One way, one way of looking at this, Michael, is we are all a certain chemical soup, all right? So <laughs> all of us are made of the same ingredients. But one soup say it tastes fantastic, another two soup is bitter. This is simply because of some cooking deficiencies. So inner engineering is about you learning to make a wonderful, blissful soup out of yourself. Let's make it happen, Michael. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it, and I thank you so. I thank you so much, thank you. and um, Namaskar. I look forward to speaking with you again, my friend. Namaskar. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. It's that time of year when you're given a moment to reflect on all that we have been grateful for. Those of us who are mired in the mud of American politics don't take stock of what's good and say thank you enough. 
as one of our nation's greatest defenders puts down her gavel and steps off the battlefield, we all actually owe Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the praise she never seemed to need, but so profoundly deserves. Pelosi, the first and only woman to serve as Speaker, is stepping aside to make room for the next generation of Democrats to lead. We will be in the minority next year after just barely losing the House, but it's due in part to Nancy Pelosi that we didn't get pummeled by the projected red wave. The 82-year-old Speaker rose to the top of the House Democratic Caucus in 2002 after leading her party against a resolution authorizing the use of force in Iraq. She was a mother first, she often said, and what mother sends their children to war just because George W. Bush has an axe to grind? Not Nancy. She went on to guide Democrats through the ups and downs of popular opinion when in and out of the majority. She managed to keep her caucus together and get major legislation done, often to the chagrin of her Republican counterparts. And boy, did Nancy take the hit for a whole lot of women. Think it's hard being a woman in politics now? Imagine what it was like when she started. And all the hate that she's had to endure just to stay on the job. She stood up to the villainous Newt Gingrich and no politician in America, with the exception of Hillary Clinton and the Obamas, has felt the wrath of angry white men more than Pelosi. We have fired Nancy Pelosi, said a smug-ass Kevin McCarthy on Fox News Wednesday. So what? Republicans won back the chamber. Now try to run it, you asshole. Pelosi would be a tough act to follow in any case, but McCarthy has no chops. He doesn't even have party loyalty. So good fucking luck. Remember watching her live television tearing up a copy of Trump's disgusting State of the Union address into tiny little pieces. I mean, it was glorious. But who's going to stop her? Not Trump. He wouldn't dare. Her wit and intelligence kept her one step ahead of her detractors. And like a boss, she knew when to blow up and when to fold up. Pelosi's long reign became a source of tension within her own party. She won the gavel after the 2018 elections by promising her own party that she would leave her leadership post by 2022. And guess what? Unlike Republicans, she kept her promise. When asked about her decision to leave, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer clutched his chest and said that he had pleaded with her to stay. But a lady knows when to exit gracefully. What more does she have to prove? House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and House Majority Whip Leader Jim Clyburn announced they too would be stepping down from their leadership posts and also endorsing Jeffries to succeed her. It takes a real leader to open up the field for the next generation. A group of legislators she both mentored and mothered will have a tough time stepping into her sensible heels. But they learn from perhaps the greatest speaker to ever hold the gavel. I hope they can rise to the occasion and make Mama proud. To quote her, and here it is, a new day is dawning on the horizon and I look forward to the unfolding story of our nation. A story of light and love, of patriotism and progress, of many becoming one. 
So I'd like to say thank you for your tireless service, Speaker Pelosi, and thank you for listening. Mayor Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mayor.